I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Startup Nightmares. Startup Nightmares is a podcast that aims to inspire those who work in the startup world to do the best work they can the best way possible while dodging some bullets doing so. Let's just be a bit more human here. All of these people started needing stuff from me. Don't feel like you're on your own because you're, you're never on your own. But I'm paying this person a good wage. Why isn't that enough? And that doesn't make me special. What makes me special is my deeper story. People need a sense of purpose to feel motivated in their job. Wake up at five in the morning and like go to the gym for an hour. Like, what the fuck is that? You're sitting at your desk crying and you're like, what happened? I had no idea how to monetize anything. I was like, ah, everybody gets a title. You get a title, you get a title. Either pay me or I will sue you. All of our guests have been to the dark side of the innovation ecosystem and came back to tell their tale. You can use this. This is how you get there. It is not a secret anymore. My name is Tal Shmueli, and I will be your host. When we asked on LinkedIn, um, the people who listened to the show were like, guys, uh, we're recording a season in, uh, in Israel. Who would you like to meet? And one of the comments was, we want to find... I'm sorry if it's going to embarrass you a little bit, but we're looking for a prominent sales and marketing leader who can talk about selling into enterprise, something that's, uh, you know, it's the, the mature part of the right. startup journey, which is something you don't see as much of in Israel. And then I reached out to my uh, group of friends who immediately said, David's your guy. And here you are. Thank you. My pleasure. I'm excited to be here. So let's kick it off with the basics. Sure. Who are you? What do you do? And why do you do it? Sure. Okay. So I'm David Garcia. I'm originally from London, UK. I've been in Israel for 15 years working in the startup scene. Um, what do I do? So my official job title is head of ABM, demand generation and sales development. What does that really mean? It's one of those titles. So it really means, as you said before, I bridge the gap between marketing and sales um, especially for uh, B2B SaaS organizations. With regards to why, I absolutely have a passion and it really is important to me. I have a passion of not only solving problems, but helping Israeli startups and organizations grow and sell internationally and scale up their business. You've been in Israel, what, 15 years now? Yes. What drove you to come here? 15 years ago, this place was drastically different than what it is now. I think there are a few elements to that. There is, of course, the Zionistic and religious element to that. 
um, as well as some family reasons of coming. But actually, if we step back a, a little bit, and I think a, an interesting story might be to go back to a couple of years after I graduated from L the London School of Economics, um, LSE, I was I followed the herd and I was working in the city of London as a risk analyst originally. Suit and tie? Yeah, suit and tie, cufflinks, blue shirts, pink tie, pink shirts, blue tie. It was all very, all very nice. And I was, like I said, working in the city of London for a couple of years in an investment bank and then for the financial arm of an energy company. And my function was risk analysis, market risk, credit risk, um, and operational risk. If I'm totally honest, I wasn't very good at it and I didn't enjoy it. I think I wasn't very good at it because I didn't enjoy it. So they're connected. But also my, my job was actually to just create reports, generate reports of analysis, of risk analysis and submit those reports. I don't know who read them. I don't know if any action was ever taken from them because I was learned, I was working for very large corporations at the time and my impact was very minimal. So I'm a curious person. So I started to ask around and it was very clear, very quickly that startup scenes and working for smaller organizations, which at the time there weren't very many in London, if I'm honest with you, it wasn't yet a startup hub, but Israel was. And I was, it was very clear to me that you can have a bigger impact and greater influence in that environment. So combining all of those reasons together, we moved to my wife and I at the time with our son, We moved to, uh, to Israel and have never looked back. When you're saying uh, you weren't very good as a risk analyst, what, what, does, what does that entail? So it entailed a lot of Excel, looking at different numbers and creating graphs. It, it involved finding any anomalies within the market shifts that could be a risk for our organization. So for example, when I was working for an energy organization, In the UK, at the time, most energy is, well, was created through coal, right? Coal energy. And so the price of coal in the, in the markets and in the futures had to constantly be monitored. Um, but I wasn't a trader. I was just creating reports of where the market was moving and shifting and sending it to an email to, you know, dot, 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 to whoever was receiving it. And there was no follow-up. There was no, like, I didn't have a meeting afterwards to explain my analysis or explain my reports. There was no collaboration with the traders in that, in that story, in that example, with regards to how they acted upon it. It was a very large organization and everybody just had their small piece within it. And then you go home. I, I found it very difficult. I, I would come home and it sounds cliche, but it's real. I would come home and I would feel like it was just meaningless. I could go on vacation. I didn't know if it was, you know, if it impacted negatively or positively, even the company. I just had no feedback and no involvement in anything beyond my, my report. What was the Israeli startup scene back then when you just arrived? So I was unable to immediately, it's a great question. I was unable to immediately get a job in, in a high-tech startup, even though I wanted to. I had no high-tech experience, no marketing and no sales experience. All I had really was, was my English that was going for me. And then I realized I had another thing that was going for me, which was my finance background. So I actually had to um, leverage that. And my initial job upon moving to Israel was in financial sales. Um, I was working for a small investment house that focused on Israel and France and the relationship between the two. My mother is French, so I'm, I'm blessed with an additional language there. 
I leveraged that experience to enter into the sales world. Then I bounced from there to where I wanted. So it's sort of like the finance experience got me into financial sales. And then the sales experience I gained there enabled me to enter into a very junior appointment setting role in a startup, in a high-tech startup. Oh, and it was a, a long journey. LSC, risk analyst, suit and tie, and then setting up appointments. It probably didn't feel like the dream <laughs> you, were, no, <laughs> you were set to achieve when you moved here. You're absolutely right. However, I have to say that I'm, I'm very lucky that I have the support around me. I have good friends, excellent family, a supportive wife and children. And for me, the journey is almost as important as the destination. So I, I make sure that I, and it really is everything in my life, I make sure that I enjoy what I'm doing in that moment. And that experience that I gained there has stuck with me. There are a lot of things that I gained in that process, going through that journey that have helped me today. Appointment setting, for example, is a very junior basic role. There's not a lot involved. You, you make many phone calls, you, you know, do many dials. However, I used that to, to learn a lot about the, the actual work, meaning the actual grunt work and the heavy lifting. I actually feel that I wouldn't be where I am today had I not gone through the whole process. So I'm, I'm pretty grateful. Well, the times we were thinking like, ah, let's go back to the UK. I never thought about going back. I've never looked back. If I'm totally honest with you, we've never, ever looked fat back. We always look forward. I knew there was a future for me. And the point where I knew there was, meaning I always believed because I, I believe in myself. As you can see, it takes a lot to leave a very comfortable life in London with a good job and move to a different country and start your career again. It's funny how the definition of a good job had changed in Absolutely. those 15 years. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would never go, never go back to that. You good are jobs right. are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Depends who you are, but absolutely. And that's where a self-honesty and self-awareness comes in. So the reason I never looked back and I was always positive looking forward is because I know who I am and I believed in what I was doing. The point at which I actually knew I was going in the right direction came quite quickly. If I'm, if, you know, if I'm recalling again, my first job in high tech was an inside sales role for Imperva. And again, there, I actually felt slightly different. I'm noticing that there's a trend here where I, I, I realize that, you know, who I am as a person. And in those days, going back now 15 years, if you worked in sales, the buzz and the excitement was in closing deals, right? People want to bang the gong. Like, Great, you got there first. <laughs> you bang the gong, everybody cheers and, and the check comes, you know, the check comes in the post and the CEO mentions your name, you close the deal. Absolutely everybody's excitement in sales, not for me. It just doesn't do it for me. I never got excited. I was in an inside sales role, closing some mid-market, small, um, small and mi medium-sized business deals And I just didn't get excited. And I realized that for me personally, if I'm honest with myself again, the actual excitement is opening doors, creating something that was never there. So opening that door, creating that initial opportunity or that initial relationship was far more interesting for me and challenging for me than closing it. Um, and that was different in those days. It, it wasn't the standard.
I can totally identify these are the, the, the term consultative selling where you build a port, yeah. you try to understand where this personal company is coming from, and then you either have or don't have something to offer them, but it's genuine and it's very human driven. And it sounds like this is the world where you thrive on. Absolutely. I'm, I'm very authentic. I'm authentic with myself. And then I portray that and I'm authentic with anyone I deal with. And therefore, it comes across in my professional life as well. And it actually goes one step further. And, and you've touched upon it. It's that when I work with my teams on their marketing, whether it's content that they're writing or uh, my sales teams where, you know, we're talking about phone calls and, and meetings, for me, being personal customizing the message to that individual and being very authentic has to be throughout. It has to be an, a sincere and important element of that throughout. And, and actually, that's also why when I tell people I work in sales, most people are surprised because in traditional, like you're saying, in traditional sales terms, a, a salesman is pushy, is extroverted, is extroverted and, and is, is putting his opinion onto you. And, and that goes against everything I believe in. And I actually think because of that, I'm finding a real niche for myself in, in, um, here in Israel. That's amazing. You said on authenticity, and it's something I, I, I can't get enough of in, in a conversation because authenticity is inescapable, but also very subtle to get right. So I'd love us to speak about that. But I also want us to use the time together to explain a little bit about the inside lingo that comes within the sales world. So we said inside sales. Can you give a short description of the different sales roles within companies? Sure, absolutely. And everyone uses different terms. Um, I think that traditionally, you used to have one person who did end-to-end, -end, everything from marketing to, to sales. Find the prospect, call, call, negotiate the contract, close it. Exactly. And now, it's, I think, especially in the high-tech scene, they're doing what's called slice and dice, specialization. Okay, so it's the difference between what you described as a, as a generalist. And then as companies mature, they are adopting more specialist uh, roles um, in order to go in, de in depth and in more detail in each one of those parts. So in terms of answering your actual question there are different roles. So there's something called at the top of the sales function. It's called SDR, sales development role. Some people call it BDR, business development role, but nowadays it's SDR. Their function is primarily to open the doors. Okay, so it can be through qualifying and calling up and, and looking after and nurturing and answering questions to anyone who came to your website requesting information or asking for a demonstration or, you know, doing it on an outbound process, which is cold calling and selling the value proposition um, to, the, to the prospect. Inside sales is doing all of what we've just described above, as well as selling the actual product or solution. So closing the deal. Kind of like playing tennis on both sides of the field. Correct. Find a find, find the prospect, get them to open up, and then engage in a selling uh, interaction. Correct. But traditionally, it's going to be for low-value products or for medium-sized companies. And therefore, it's called inside sales because they can do everything inside. They can stay here in the office in Tel Aviv, and they can sell internationally. 
what that is different to is field sales, also known as sometimes AEs, account executives or enterprise account executives. And what they will do is work with the SDRs, the sales development reps, and take that initial interest or that initial meeting and only work from that point onwards. So they're working with what might be called qualified prospects and taking them to, to become a customer um, as opposed to inside sales, which is end to end, but maybe for slightly smaller deals and smaller organizations. Excellent. And these are, these are the people in the trenches. These are the people who are actually doing the selling themselves. Sometimes they can call reinforcement, be it a product person, a technical person, a director from the sales team and so on. Everything that it takes to close the sales. And who stands on top of that pyramid in a sales organization? So I think that really depends on the stage of that organization. So I've seen different, you know, different models, let's call it. For very, very early stage startups, you might still get the founder, the co-founder, the CEO, who initially starts doing that role, gets some initial uh, traction, and then hires their first marketing and their first sales person, and they may still sit at the top of that. As organizations grow, then they will start to get heads of marketing and heads of sales um, functions. And as that grows even more, then you might start seeing people with fancy titles, directors, VPs, and then they would build a hierarchy um, around that. The interesting part comes in the fact that actually the, the loop is closed. By the time the startup grows to, to a level that's even higher, the bridges and the gaps between marketing and the SDR that we've described and the closers in the sales team, the bridge and the gap starts to widen. And one of the ways that they solve that gap at startups is actually to go and bring another senior, an even more senior person to add to the hierarchy, which might sometimes be a chief revenue officer, CRO. And then that man or woman is like the act as the umbrella over the whole customer-facing organization. The from... orchestrator of the sales and the marketing. And we'll touch on the dynamic because it's such an important component of the startup world. It's the, it's, the, it's the make it or break it in so many cases. Now, there's the roles of sales managers. These are the relatively mid-management role. You are in charge of managing the sales team. So managing the pipeline, making sure that they get the mentorship and the coaching they need, uh, assist, give feedback, uh, and report up. Then there's the um, director or VP sales, sometimes it is called. What is the responsibility of the senior person in the sales team? Because they're not on the phone calling, and they're also not necessarily giving coaching or managing the pipeline. Mm. Walk, to us, uh, walk us through the, 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 the day of our VP sales. Sure. So the, one of the ways I, I view it, and it doesn't cover all you know, examples, but one of the ways I view it is the difference between execution, tactics, and strategy. So if we go through what you said, the execution is the, the sales reps in the trenches. They're executing day in, day out. They're making phone calls. They're having meetings. They're sending emails. The tactics, you know, how, they, how they should send that email, you know, how many phone calls they should make, those are, that's the mid-management tier, as you described, the managers and the heads of those sales teams. And then my personal view of the VP level, so the real senior um, dire you know, directors and VPs, as you, said, as you described, are more focusing on strategy. So instead of the how and the what, I think they're asking the questions of, 
of the the why so why are we speaking to them you know why are we phoning these people why should they listen to us why do we have a solution to answer their business challenges so they're looking more at strategic issues to make sure that everybody is pulling and pushing and all that hustle that you described making sure that's going in the right direction so and and they are very focused on their team or their their function which is the sales Sales, they go hand in hand with product and they go hand in hand with marketing. And this is where the plot thickens, if you will, because sales can only sell what's on offer. And sometimes the customers want things that are different. And sometimes in order to reach a certain velocity in sales, you need the, the, you need the air support that comes from marketing, the messaging, get the product out there, get the brand out there, make sure they know what we're about. Because otherwise, you can spend hours on the phone with someone explaining the product where ideally you want to have them in a position where they already know about you and they are considering using your service or product. So let's now talk about the dynamic between sales team and marketing. And let's kick it off with marketing, a good, well-functioning marketing team. What's the purpose it serves in a startup? So again, I think I will answer with it depends on the stage. I think... I think you know for most startups, what is the purpose or what are they actually doing are two different things. So I believe the purpose should be, like you said, to support the sales team. I actually think that ultimately the purpose of marketing is to enable the sales team to, to generate revenue. Now, drill down into that, we will start talking about branding and messaging and uh, prospecting and uh, you know all these different things event management and content creation and all of that is involved in what you know marketing teams do but we shouldn't lose sight of the main function of almost everybody it is to generate revenue and help this company grow and therefore even the product the R&D team Everybody, marketing, especially as we're talking about today, should maintain that, that view and enable the sales team to generate revenue. So marketing teams work in two parallel uh, universes. One would be, let's build a brand that is recognizable, that is loved, that people connect with. Fair enough. That's a very uh, kind of like a, a long-term, mm -hmm. a continuous journey. And the other part is performance marketing. Let's feed the machine with leads. Let's get people interested and clicking and wanting to get on a call and buy the product, which is performance marketing. It's a world in its own. We cover it in many angles um, on the show. What are the discrepancies that come between sales and marketing? Because it sounds very straightforward. Of course, we need to all serve the greater purpose. We all need to work towards generating revenue. So why is there a need to connect those two departments? I think the part of the problem comes in the question um, with respect. And we all, we all create that problem. Two departments. We view them as two departments. We always talk about sales and marketing and customer success as three different teams. I will give the credit to my current CEO here at, at Law Geeks. And he's always talking to us about one unified, what's called go-to-market, customer-facing team. And when you view it as one team, everything changes. Everything, your mindset shifts. Some of the classic challenges, and I'll share a few stories with you. Some of the classic challenges that I have, have seen come mainly because they're viewed as different departments and they don't have a handshake or collaboration between them. 
the three main ones that come to my mind, and there are many, <laughs> unfortunately, the three main ones that come to my mind would be, I would say, on messaging. I entered a startup, and on my first day, I did two things. I read the website, and I listened to sales calls. Then I read the website, then I listened to sales calls. I did it a third time because I was confused that the message that I was reading on the website was fundamentally different to the sales calls that I was listening to because the benefits and features that were mentioned on the website didn't match the benefits and features that the sales team were, were, were describing. At that same organization, about a week into my job, I, I attended the first sales and marketing weekly meeting whereby the discussion was that the sales team was saying, thank you for giving us these leads, as you've described, these potential prospects, but they're coming from vertical or industry A, geography A. We don't have the ability to sell to you know, A. Why are you not bringing us B? And these, are very, these two are not the largest. The third one is probably the larger pain we'll get to in a moment, but those can be solved very quickly. First of all, by viewing it as one team collaborating in a, in a much more efficient and unified manner, but by, by creating internal SLAs, service level agreements, handshakes, if you will, right? So when the marketing team wants to do a rebrand or create a new website and do messaging, they should involve the sales team. They should be part of that process. They should be getting feedback from, from the field, not everything in theory. You know, that's, that's an example. Um, the third, I would say the third main challenge between sales and marketing that I see, in my personal opinion, is a very contentious topic. I actually think it's goals and targets. Okay. And I like to describe this with a story. A different startup that I joined, I went to one of their conferences, uh, trade show conference. And back when trade shows. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Pre COVID trade show. And the marketing team physically walked around with uh, a box on their shoulder full of the swag, the giveaway, the, the, the gadgets that they were giving away. They walked around the trade show floor, giving away as many of these gadgets and toys as possible in exchange for business cards. That was it. They didn't have any conversations. They didn't care who it was or why. And I, physically, I saw this with my own eyes. And their reason was, well, of course, we have a target. We have a target of the number of business cards we need to go home with. And that's because it's a volume-based target. And you mentioned that before, right? When you said get as many leads as possible and build up some momentum. The sales team don't care about volume. Of course, they want more, but they care more about quality rather than quantity. Coming home with 100 business cards that led to zero business relationships and, of course, zero or almost zero revenue doesn't help the sales team and doesn't help the organization. And it takes the conversation towards a different uh, uh, direction, whereas you're like, well, we gave you 100 phone numbers. You need to increase the conversion from getting the phone number to securing a meeting. So instead of discussing yes. the strategy, you're discussing the tactics in which you can secure a meeting. And, and, and then on top of that, especially if you go back a decade, especially it's much better now, if you go back 10 years ago, the solution to that was just more. Oh, it, we didn't convert these 100 business cards. Next year, please bring home 200 business cards. And the, the conversation was already a conflict between the two teams because their goals were not aligned. And their solution was volume-based, which again hurts the actual organization's bottom line. So do you think that 
this is still something that's happening in companies today or have we completely moved on? I think elements of it are still happening and elements have moved on. The, the volume-based solution has somewhat moved on. And to my personal benefit, with my analytical background and my interest in numbers, and there now are a lot of solutions out there that help um, analyze performance of sales and marketing teams, then I think we have somewhat moved on where we're looking at you know, quality and not just quantity, where people are analyzing conversion rates, progression rates, velocity rates, all these fancy words to see how those 100 business cards convert to revenue or not. So I think we've somewhat moved on to that. What we have not moved on from is that the actual goals and, and, and targets Almost every startup that I talk to still talk in terms of uh, marketing, having volume-based uh, KPIs, key performance indicators, and sales, of course, being measured primarily on revenue. Why do you think that's the case? I actually think that no, there is no, there is no trend yet to put focus on that. Often the solution, people are saying, well, the solution is that the heads of each of these departments need to collaborate better and work better. Successful companies have actually appointed somebody to be in charge of that, to, to whether, it, like we described before, a, a, a senior person, a chief revenue officer who, for that person, it's one team, or in my situation, which is very niche, appointing someone before you have the problem to ensure that the, the gap is filled right from the beginning. And it's, it's, it's almost like everything in life. If you don't put enough attention on it, then the problem will not just go away on its, uh, on its own. I was just about to say, because the, the, the timing of that appointment is so critical. Because if you already have a, a VP marketing and a VP sales, and then you're putting a chief revenue officer on top of that, more often than not, you will not get the result you want. Because you've hired a VP sales that is a master in optimizing sales processes, and you've hired a VP marketing who is a master in creating a big splash. And now there's a guy who says, okay, you guys need to get along better so I can meet my own KPIs. Naturally, it's going to create some friction. So are you seeing a transition into thinking about revenue as a, as a function? I definitely am. We're seeing new positions out there as a function. We're, we're getting people where they are revenue growth officers or you revenue know, operations, revenue ops, exactly revenue operations. And by the way, revenue operations is, let's call it a replacement for two functions, marketing operations and sales operations. And revenue operations is somebody who looks at the whole end-to-end -end process in one, not just marketing and sales that we're describing, but they also envelope over customer success. What happens once these prospects become customers? Let's not ignore them. And it's all one process. And we're seeing a, a real consolidation between them. And that's not to say that the CRO, the chief revenue officer, she's not there to replace the CFO, which is the chief financial officer. It becomes nuanced and it evolves. And the subtleties are so meaningful because together with the trend of developing expertise or, or specialties, as in SDR, inside sales, there's also a consolidation. So I think that's a very fascinating part of the maturity of, a, of, of the startup journeys that you have to be an expert on a tiny segment of the sales process on one hand, but you have to look at it from a very wholesome, holistic perspective. Absolutely. And one of the pieces of advice I always give new people or people, you know, who are 
uh, more at the beginning of their career is actually not to be afraid to 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 be a bit more of a generalist right we just described how as a company grows they're looking for more specialists bounce around it's okay the person who's worked a little bit in marketing a little bit in sales and a little bit in customer success creates and generates for themselves a broader picture they are much more dangerous professional to be in a room with in that regard they can ask they can challenge they can comment on a variety of uh, things i want to take a moment to talk about the um life cycle or professional journey of people in sales because you can do uh, you can come in as an sdr and then you evolve into an account executive and then you could be a sales manager or even a sales director at what point does this journey stop preparing you for the next stage in your career i actually am not convinced that any of these roles in and of themselves prepare you for the next stage <laughs> if i'm honest with you even 100%. the ones you describe So if you, if you think about it, an SDR that we described before, the sales development rep, opens doors. If you do really well in Silicon, Valley, in Silicon Valley, it can be anywhere from six to 18 months of success there, and you get a promotion to an account executive. The primary function of an account executive is to close deals. So the reward for opening doors is to go and throw them into a position where they're closing deals. They have no experience for that. Yes, the SDR experience will help them because they can do some of their own prospecting. They, you know, they understand how not to be reliant on other people to feed them these leads and create their own pipeline. But the actual primary function hasn't been taught to them at all. And then a second mistake that I'm seeing often And again, this might be rebellious, this isn't the standard, is, and we say it a lot, unfortunately, still here in Tel Aviv, is people appointing their best AE as the next manager. I'm the first to admit some people within my marketing and sales teams can execute far, far, far better than I can. I personally view myself, and you know, this isn't my uh, job interview or CV, but I view myself as a good manager, project management, people management, time management. Those are not necessarily the same skills involved in, in executing in certain marketing and sales jobs. This is a long way of saying that one of the things that I'm, I'm actually trying to improve in a very slow manner is the education of marketing and sales reps in order to help them move to the next level. I don't think business schools prepare them and I don't think the companies themselves prepare them enough. Fascinating. Because when you're thinking about preparing someone for a role, you said it yourself, they could be doing it for six to 18 months. How much time and effort am I going to put into educating someone that's only going to give me a, a year of work before moving on to the next role? And that role will not necessarily prepare them for the next role. So how do you, as a manager who have built teams and scaled teams, how do you go about choosing your applicants and making sure that the, the time they spend with you prepares them for the next play? So for me, it starts right at the beginning in the recruitment and the hiring process. I want to make sure absolutely, you know, that I'm talking to the right people, that they're realistic with what it takes for true growth. So I, I will ask direct questions such as where do you see yourself in one year, three years, five years? So you can get a feel for how realistic their, their you know, their mm, growth so if, if I'm, be. If, I'm re- if I'm being uh, um, considered for an SDR role and you ask me in five years and I'm saying uh, VP sales, what would you say? You'd be like, 
So I will tell you, I said, I'm not sure that's very realistic. And I will give real examples of VP sales that only got appointed after 15 years. And I believe that they are very experienced. I'm very open and direct. And I don't judge the person based on their response. I actually want to help them. If they say, wow, you're right, I realize, then that's fine. Right. I'm not expecting everybody to know all the answers from from the beginning. So it's not about getting the, the right answer. It's about understanding the person's perspective and motivation and expectation. Absolutely. And if you were to ask me a slightly different question and say, well, what are the character traits you want to hire when you, know, you look for when hiring an SDR or an AE account executive? A lot of people start saying persistence, consistency, uh, active listening, and they're all critical. For me, the first top of the list is coachability. If somebody hasn't got coachability, I'm not sure if it's a real word, but if I cannot coach them, if my team cannot coach them, if they're not willing to be self-taught as well, right, to grow in, 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 on their own, then for me, that's already a red flag. So would you say that if someone says that they're coachable, would that be um, equivalent to saying like opting in for feedback? It's absolutely opting in for feedback and then acting upon it. So in our processes, we, we, in our recruitment process, we often will do tests, whether it's a research test or a phone simulation, whatever the test is. One test for me doesn't teach me anything. I'm absolutely not interested in one test because I want you to be coachable, not the finished article. Unless I'm hiring for a senior position, that's a different, a different issue. So we will run through one of these tests, I will give um, feedback. For, sorry, before I give feedback, I ask them how I think they have performed to see how self-aware they are. Then I will give both positive and constructive feedback. And then either you know, a few minutes later or sometimes even the next day, we will go and do it again. And I'm looking to see if they've listened to that feedback. It sounds like you spend a lot of your time with your directs. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How did get 30, 30, get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Like that your job is their performance in a way. So it, it's not in a way, it's 100%. It's 100%. For me, 
the expectation to give them initial onboarding, right? Onboarding is the training you get when you've just joined a company. I received onboarding a lot. And then it's sort of like, okay, you've received two days, maybe two weeks, whatever it is of training. Here you go. Good luck. For me, that didn't work. And therefore, I have to make sure that I pay it forward, the lesson that I've learned. And for me, it's ongoing. And when building a sales team, it's, it's not new and it's not mine, but there are three main elements. There's uh, people, there are people, processes, and tools. And so people is the first one, and it's the primary one. Hiring and recruiting and training, motivating, and holding on to the right people, for me, is probably the most critical part of growing any startup. When I think about the um, going in sales, there is always this painful dynamic where you kill it, your target goes. You kill it, your target goes until it becomes unsustainable. Is that an avoidable loop? It's very avoidable. And actually, I'm glad you brought it up because on the drive here, I was thinking of that same dynamic. It's really honest. And it's disheartening, right? So the reward, you think, think of this scenario. You have, you have your, an excellent sales rep, finishes the quarter with 120% achievement. And the reward for their 120% achievement is, well, a slap in the face, if we can say it that way, because it's a 150% increase on next quarter's title. And it's more than that. It doesn't just make their life harder. You've actually effectively reduced their salary because now they have to do even more to hit the same on-target earnings. In terms of being avoidable, it's very avoidable. There, there are different sales structures that can be built and it really depends on each business that rewards overperformance with an accelerator that will compensate them you know, at an accelerated rate so much that even with an increase in, in uh, targets next quarter, they're still better off. That's one option. And another option is actually to not grow in the manner that you've just described. So instead of growing by expecting each individual to constantly give you more and more and more, accept where their limit is and grow by hiring another person or by automating or by you know, bringing in efficiencies in different manners. One of, the, uh, one of the things that make hiring salespeople easy is that they pay for themselves. Yes, they do. If they're a good salesperson, they, the ROI on, on employing this person will be, will be substantial and vice versa. But it comes down to, can I onboard them the right way? Can I set targets in a motivating way rather than a demotivating way? And do I know how to optimize the processes? Because some growth is expected and it's okay to get a target that's 120, 130%, uh, half on half or quarter on quarter because we got better. The product got better. We've, uh, we've matured in our, marketing, uh, in our marketing approach. I got better at the job I'm doing. I, I qualify right. customers better. It takes me less time to close. So that's fine. But when the targets are completely detached from the progression of the company, it becomes, sorry, but it becomes just a meat grinder. And people graduate two or three years in sales, overworked, burnt out, tired and disheartened. And with that, they go and they start looking for a job. And that's where you absolutely don't want to be. You don't want to be there because, as, as you said, I put a lot, like you gave me as an example, I put a lot of effort in the recruitment, the hiring, the onboarding and everything. To lose someone after a few years means you have to start that whole process all over again. And 
it, again, it might sound cliched, but people buy from people. So if you're constantly seeing turnover of your sales, um, of your sales reps, then even your customers and your prospects will notice the relationships will, will be hurt there. And, and let's be honest, when you're selling for a startup, you're sometimes selling products that are, I wouldn't say half-baked, but they're not bulletproof right anyway. So the relationship and the report you've built and the trust you've established is your insurance policy against everything that goes wrong. I would buy from David if I know that David would be there when something breaks. I understand. I'm, I'm buying from a startup. I get it. Uh, but I want to know that David would pick up the phone. I don't care that I have a customer success rep. I want to be able to challenge the person who sold me that product or at least have a have a have a uh, kind of like a speed dial person who can say, listen, I'll put you in touch with Shelly. Shelly will figure it out for you. And I think that's a huge part of wanting to retain employees. Agreed. And customers are not stupid, right? So there are websites out there, um, for example, Glassdoor. It's a pretty well-known website where people can review anonymously their companies, right? As an employee, they can review the employer. Our customers are reviewing that because they're saying to themselves something very basic. If they can't treat their own people well, why would they treat their customers well? Seriously. 100% seriously. So when you work for Logis, we'll touch on that company because it's absolutely fascinating. But when people are considering your solution, which is AI generation of, of contracts, they look at your glass door and the glass door doesn't say anything about the product, the features, the pricing. Because people buy from people, relationships are, are king, absolutely. And so the customers are looking at it and also future, um, future hires are also looking at it. So if you don't treat your existing team and, and employees well now, the ones that you will hire as replacements may be worse because they will hear about that. Fascinating. One thing I skipped in the conversation was around um, you saying you spend so much time with your reps. It's your number one priority and the vast, vast, vast majority of your time. So what would you say to people who, who claim that startups is a land of generalists? You have to constantly be reactive and put out fires and wear many hats. How can you create focus for yourself and your team when you live in an ecosystem that, that sometimes motivates or rewards generalism and superficiality? I think it really depends on the stage you're at. So we, we use the term startups to mean quite a lot, right? They're quite a wide range. Startup can be three people in a garage and startup can be somebody who's already raised 20 million uh, in funding and they're very different. So um, I think you do need generalists often right at the beginning. And then as you grow, you should move slight, you know, slightly and uh, continuously and slightly towards the specialist um, functions. In terms of the other parts of your question, I actually take a very easy approach on this. It's the, it's the will it move the needle approach, the 80-20 approach, right? So 80% or whatever it is, 20% of most people's time is on the 80% most important parts and, and it should be the other way around. And so what I'm always asking my team is, will it move the needle? So when you're in a fast pace, and I've always worked for the last 15 years in fast paced startups and you are putting out fires but you always and the dynamics is is always changing and the strategy might change every single day really every day however you always have to ask yourself what is the priority so that's where management skills come across uh, come to the forefront sorry in terms of prioritizing and deciding what will move the needle what that means and what will move the needle is will this really make a difference so when you work for larger corporations you can 
you know, cross every T and dot every I and make it all pristine. But when you work for a startup, you don't necessarily need to do that if it's not going to be something that will help your company move to the next level. Thank You've you. worked for a couple of companies, more than a couple, actually. I think it's four now uh, that have either exited, IPO'd or, or acquired. Just kind of like, where are those companies? When were you there? Just kind of like orientate us. Sure. Um, so I'd say that the first one I, wo- I worked um, over 10 years ago now, I worked for a digital signature company, which is different to an electronic signature. Um, we won't go into too much detail of the difference. And it was a very niche market with a very successful growth path that I helped them with. And I was just one piece of a, of a big puzzle. And we were acquired by DocuSign, which now everybody knows is one of the largest e-signature companies in the world. One of the reasons that that was a successful exit was that that startup did one thing very right, and that was to pick a niche market and to go for it. They didn't say, which is a very classic mistake that a lot of startups say, is everyone will need our solution. Well, this is perfect for all organizations. The, the, the blue sky is, is way too blue. Like exactly. every, who, who is your customer? <laughs> Everywhere, everyone who breathes on planet Earth. You like, must have heard that, right? You hear it a lot. I probably young. said it, unfortunately. Too. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what they did was they, they decided that they would create a digital signature, which was is similar to an electronic signature, but it's a lot more secure. And therefore, it can be sold to government or it can be sold to some, some uh, you know, very, industry uh, specific industries that care about security um, and industry standards and by dominating one market very very well they were successful in that you know in what they did so they went deep in one my piece of that puzzle was helping them sell internationally um, they they viewed it as the international market and I say the international markets Okay, that's how I view it different. It's such a subtle distinction, but it, it, it makes a world of difference in how you think about it. Absolutely. I'm going to give you a crazy story. So, for example, they were trying to sell, when I, when I first learned, we were trying to sell into France. Um, and I can say this because, again, I'll repeat, my mother is French. So they were trying to sell into France. Now, the French normally like to buy from, from other French yep. um, vendors, right? Um, and not just in technology, right? They buy French wine, French cheese, French technology. Not only were we an Israeli company, we were an Israeli company in Israel where no one was speaking French. And specifically, we were trying to sell into, we were trying to sell into the government and the government or local government at the time only buy through official licensed resellers. They have a list of who they, you know, integrators or resellers, people that they trust so you sell to the reseller and work with them to sell into these uh, government agencies. To mitigate the risk of the transaction. Absolutely. But we had a playbook, like I said, an international market. And therefore, we were a company that sold directly. But to enforce our process and our sales process that was working very well in other international markets onto that one you know, specific market doesn't work. So it sounds obvious and easy to say it, but it involves creating a whole new playbook, a whole new process, and really educating the internal team on focusing more on what I call the buyer journey, as opposed to our own sales process. They sound like the same because they do go parallel. The journey 
sort of they're, they're mirror images and, and they're parallel, but it's very different. It's whether or not you're thinking about what's good for us and how we want to sell compared to how do they buy? What do they buy? Where do they buy? Am I one of three vendors who, are, who is competing for that budget? Am I actually speaking to the, to the decision maker? Is the decision maker one person or more than one person? Do they sign off on budgets quarterly or do they have a yearly budget? Absolutely. All sorts of things that operate in, in a variety of ways that you need to figure out in order to find the process that supports, informs, and, and closes that, that structure. Correct. Um, so, so the buyer journey. So what we did was we mapped out the buyer journey and we realized that it had fundamental differences with our seller's journey and our sales process. And by ask, answering or asking those questions and then coming up with answers already puts you in a huge advantage over the majority of your competitors. Yeah. So that was a, a great experience. Uh, and another really good experience I had was at Cloudin, which was acquired successfully by Microsoft a couple of years ago. $85 million? What was that? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Whatever it said in the news, I'm not <laughs> permitted to, to say. <laughs> but yes, and then I, I, I would say there it was very exciting because when I joined, they were a very successful, small sales um, department that was having some very exciting initial success with mid-market companies. And then what I was able to do together with the whole team, with the marketing and sales team, we were able to pivot towards the enterprise. And pivoting to the enterprise is not copy pasting everything that worked for small, medium businesses and the mid market. It's not at all that. It's, it's almost an entire new strategy that you have to build. So enterprise is a world that keeps coming back. Let's double click on the enterprise folder and walk us through. When you say enterprise, what do you mean? What does that entail? Why is it so different to the beast we know as mid-markets? So every company's definition of enterprise can be slightly different. Fortune 500, Global 2000, but you know, over a billion, over, over 5 billion uh, annual revenue. But ultimately, we're talking about selling to large corporations that have longer sales cycles and multiple stakeholders. When selling to a small organization, often it could, you could be dealing with one individual who wants to solve that one pain. And they're, they're happy to buy your standalone solution to solve that one pain quickly because they don't have time for, for admin and jumping through you know, uh, enterprise hoops. Selling to an enterprise, it means it involves selling to multiple people. There's decision makers, user buyers, finance, finance buyers, influencers, champions. IT managers. IT, security processes. Um, there's, there's a whole world out there. Their buyer journey, let's, let's close that loop. Their buyer journey is fundamentally different. And therefore, our sales process needs to change. Not only our sales process needs to change, but who you hire needs to change. I recently was asked, it was maybe two weeks ago, somebody asked me, who's the best sales rep out there? So I don't, I don't understand the question, if I'm honest with you, because it depends. Who are you? What, what's your gap that you're trying to fill? What stage is your company at? The best for a young company is different than the best for a, a, a mature company. Are you selling to mid-market? Are you selling to IT folks? Are you selling to... It's about finding the right people for the right stage and for the right market, which means when you want to pivot from the mid-market to the enterprise, you need to reassess your 
internal structure, your internal team, your process, the buyer journey, even your product. Often selling to a small organization, like I, I said before, they will just buy your product. When selling to an enterprise, not only does it need to go through security and industry standard checks, but also they might expect it to integrate and, and, and work with their existing systems. So it's, it's a complete new strategy. And the support post-purchase is much more robust. And the implementation is a process in its own. And some of the payment may be deferred until successful implementation. It's endless. And the thing is that makes it even more complicated is that the company doesn't report to their investors, guys, we won't be selling anything for the next six to 12 months because we're transitioning to enterprise. You're expected to still meet and exceed your goals while changing essentially your business model. I agree. The number one tip I always say when people say, okay, let's talk about pivoting is get leadership buy-in. Before you do anything, get leadership buy-in. You need leadership buy-in because you're going to change everything and because you are possibly going to take a short-term hit. Yeah. And I would call in a favor for someone who's working for an enterprise and say, listen, I'm not selling to you, but I need you to explain to me if I was to sell to you, what would that look like? I agree. One of the great things actually about working here in Israel is that we're a small community. You know, I know it's not the exact question you asked, but it's very relevant at this point is that that's exactly what we've done. I mean, I didn't know these answers several years ago. And the best way to do it is to go and talk to people and, and learn from other people's wins and losses. Two things about Claudine. Um, so that's a company that uh, cloud services optimizing uh, the usage of cloud uh, cloud services. Super advanced and very timely. They were very discreet in, in the whole purchase, right? The, 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 the sums of the purchase wasn't, uh, wasn't really uh, uh, announced. And it seems like at least in some part of the company didn't even know uh, an acquisition was coming. Yeah, I think some people were, were, were uh, unaware of it. It was a little bit earlier than the, and, and you know, it's, I'm not one of the founders. I wasn't the CEO. I think it was a little bit earlier than we had hoped. When an opportunity comes across, um, you always have to ask yourselves, you know, is, is, is this the right decision to take or not? And often when an organization like Microsoft come, and again, I don't have any inside information on these exact conversations, but when Microsoft, Google, Amazon want to buy a company, they're either going to buy you, your competitor, or spend some spare change and develop a solution that on their own. So the, you know, the owners had to, you know, look at themselves and say, you know, is this, it was a great success and I'm sure it would have been an even bigger success in the future, but every owner needs to make their own decision as to when is the right time to exit. Back then, we were still working in offices. So leading up to the acquisition, did you feel like people are gathering in halls and like, like just whispering in among the steps? You started getting requests for all those bizarre reports that you've never reported on before. What was it like? So, so as a so as a mid to senior manager, I was aware of the discussions and therefore those requests for those reports, which came and came thick and fast <laughs> and at all hours of the day, those requests were expected and were part of it. The, and I, I'd say that the odd feeling wasn't, as you described, it was actually the opposite. The odd feeling was that we were told very clearly it's business as usual until the day it's, you know, until it, the day it's not. And therefore I had to, you know, even the day before I had to run coaching and strategic discussions and all the different things that you do for, for the various teams as if it was business as usual, knowing that there would be an announcement, you know, very soon. 
personal story with Claudine. I was, uh, I was with LinkedIn back then. I just got promoted into an account executive role and I was selling into Claudine. And we, had, uh, we started seeing some traction and the, guy, the product was there. We had the audience for you guys. We had everything we needed to, to take off. And we were negotiating what could have been our largest deal to date. I think it was about a half a million dollars of a worth of ad spend. Substantial. Now, wow. I already put it on, my, uh, on the CRM. Like I already said, I'm working on this deal. I was hoping for an upside, but I was already yeah. working on that deal. And the deal got cold. And, and, my, and my contact, the VP marketing back then, we were, spoke, we were speaking quite regularly. And she goes, listen, I don't have answers for you right now. <laughs> Still interested, still everything. I don't have answers for you right now. Check in with me in a couple of weeks. Check in with me in a month and so on. One morning I go in, my routine was to check in all the, all the business news and I see Claudine acquired by Microsoft for an undisclosed sum. And I'm like, this is where my deal went. <laughs> I had no idea that you had that connection, but it doesn't surprise me at all. Absolutely. It was a weird time. We had to pretend it was business as usual, but we couldn't sign. You can't sign, you know, and it's not just Claudine, just before any exit. You know, it's not the time to go and sign new deals, but you can't necessarily tell everyone why. Yeah, yeah, of course. (laughs) What was more upsetting to me on a personal level is that Microsoft bought Claudine. Microsoft also bought LinkedIn. Yeah. So I'm like, hey, can we still take that half a million dollars and move it from this pocket to the other? I really want to go on a nice, fancy holiday. That's nice. And then my manager goes, okay, so uh, money stays in the family, at least that. Right. (laughs) On a a slightly different topic, I was once evaluating two different sales tools. Um, actually databases that we would buy and we were evaluating the primary two and then we thought at a certain point we would be a bit more honest and we would say to them okay we we would be honest and say and share with them that we're evaluating them and their primary competitor could they please tell us why you know why they should get the deal or not and they were both answering very weakly and we were like with very weak responses and we just didn't understand. Normally people are very heated and competitive. And then about two weeks later, we read also like yourself in the news that they merged. <laughs> are we talking Tabula and Outbrain? No, we're talking uh, Zoom Info and Discover Org. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So we've covered, what was the name of the digital signature company? ARX. And ARX. then I worked for DocuSign for a few years. And then DocuSign and then, then Cloudin. Then I stayed with Microsoft for a very short period of time. Large corporations are not for me. I made that clear. Um, and now? And, and now Logix. Logix is a fascinating company. What does the company do? Why? Where is it in its uh, stages? So Logix, I joined two and a half years ago. Super exciting. It's a disruptive technology to the legal industry, um, which is what is exciting for me. We're an AI tool to automate the contract review process that enables the in-house legal counsel to remove all of the mundane and repetitive contract review, which is reading and editing contracts, remove that off of their desk and allow them to spend more time on strategic legal issues, focusing more on, is this a good deal rather than Let's look inside every clause of every contract. The use case is that the person negotiating the contract does all the revisions and sends it to legal. Legal gives back whatever feedback they have, sends it to the customer, they converse, they come up with an outcome, and then legal has to review it again. It is a long, tedious, laborious, deal-killing process. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes it means reading a 20, 30 uh, uh, pages document just to see that nothing was changed or that something tiny was changed. And you guys are solving for that with AI. 
Absolutely, yes. How many people work in Logix right now? Around 100. And what is your team like there? So we have multiple teams. So that slice and dice that we spoke about earlier in this conversation, we've put that in into place. So we've got a marketing team with regards to branding and, and everything that you described on that side of marketing, um, which is led by our VP marketing. We then have performance marketing, which involves content that's being written specifically for that team, um, digital marketers, growth marketer, online digital. Very as well as, robust, very as, mature. Correct. We've got event managers that deal with face to face as well as virtual um, virtual events. We then have SPRs dealing with four different teams: enterprise, mid market, inbound, and outbound. So really specialized. And then we have mid market and enterprise uh, sales reps, both in Tel Aviv and in New York. Got it. How many uh, rounds have the company has been through, and how much money did it raise so far? Sure. So we've gone through three rounds of fundraising. And actually, our, our latest one was very recently. We actually just raised 20 million during COVID-19. Wow. There aren't many. Kudos, if, no one actually within legal tech has been able to successfully do that, which shows you that the market is still validating, not just law geeks, but also the pain, right? So the pain of what we've just described, that use case of multiple Back and forth. Back and forth iterations of contract review does, hasn't gone away. And if anything, legal teams today are actually having to do more work with less resources. They've got their, you know, their cutting costs. They've let people go and they need to plan for the future. What happens if your legal team is unavailable for whatever reason, you know, sickness or, or working from home? And so they're looking to us to automate that old process. So it's not about AI taking jobs quite differently, right? So I asked that same question in my job interview with Nuri Bukhar, our CEO, and his example and his response, I, I still liked. So he said back in the 70s, when pilots were told that there's going to be autopilot, they asked the same question. And today there are more pilots than ever before and planes are safer than ever before. That's number one. And so it's a similar answer to that. And number two, you don't use autopilot for takeoff or for turbulence or for landing. You use it for cruise control, right? You use it for the day-to-day, -day, uh, the day-to-day -day or the just, you know, the flying uh, cruise element of, of, of that journey. And so too with Law Geeks, if you've got that one-time bespoke 300-page finance agreement, please go and pay an expert to go and look at that you know, in detail. But if you're receiving 300 contracts every month that are almost the same, just to sign a confidentiality agreement before you enter a new business relationship, there's no need to get your expensive in-house lawyers to, to read and review that anymore. Got it. Last bit I want us to discuss uh, before speaking about your managerial persona would be the transition from mid-market to enterprise. We touched on it a little bit. But with regards to startups, how does a startup manage their transition well? I think before you manage it well, you have to ask yourself why and when, in my opinion. If the answer is why, oh, I just want the big customers, it's not a good answer, right? So it won't be successful unless it's for the right reasons. And I've seen startups answer that. They say, oh, bigger deals or better names. You just want to be able to plaster that Microsoft logo on your website Sometimes it will just suffocate the business, not lead to the expected growth. 
Absolutely. But it, you need to ask yourself, I, 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 let's go back to the authenticity. You have to ask yourself, do you really have a solution that answers their business pain? If you don't, then you have to question whether that's the right move. Probably if you answer too quickly, then, then you don't understand the needs well enough. Agreed. And that's why when we moved from mid-market to enterprise, it was, a, it was an entire process. We reviewed everything, our products, our, our go-to-market and marketing and sales strategy, our internal people, our, our market. We interviewed, we, we did market research as if we were new again. If you don't do that full process, then I believe you're setting yourself up for failure. So you did the market research again? 100%. It's an entire new process. It's a new market. You have, when you say I have product market fit and I validated the market, you validated that market, didn't validate another market. Startups are infamous for superficiality, for scrappiness, for figuring, figuring it out as they go. And you're describing a very calm, calculated, thorough process. Yes and no. I, what we did, so we had to do that internally. Externally, it's a lot of trial and error. So the way startups, the way we've learned is you don't wait till you've got the final answers in order to begin. You test. So there's a lot of tests, dip your, you know, dip your feet in and toes in, come out, self-assess, self-evaluate, dip in again somewhere else. If you go all the way in and it's wrong, I actually think it could hurt you long term. It can kill the company. It can kill the company. The mid-market and the small, medium enterprise, uh, small, medium businesses is a huge market. There are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of potential customers. If you ruin one, you've always got another one. There are a finite number of enterprises. And if your first impression with them is wrong, it's going to take a long time until they agree to another meeting. So on the one hand, you're right. Startups are, are infamous for diving in. But most startups fail. If you want to do it right, you need to find that balance. In, in jumping in and testing, but, but quickly reevaluating and doing a lot of A-B testing. Authenticity, um, big word. And I want to I wanna put it aside for a second and then say, when you work for a company, you have, you, have the, you have the title, you have the job that you were hired to do. Then you have your role within the company, which is sometimes something different, right? Yes. The, the serious person, the conservative, the, the wild card, whatever it is. How would you define your, your role within the company? Being UK-born, a professional, mid-senior manager. I view myself as a little bit of all the things you described. Uh, I said before, I'm a very organized person. So project manage, management is a big piece, making sure that everyone knows exactly what is expected of them and that everything moves forward. When you work for a startup, there are a thousand things to do and you've got to pick the, the, be the best 10 for today. And, and I pride myself on being able to quickly assess what are those 10 and making sure they're done correctly. But I'm also a highly energized and motivated person for things I'm passionate about. So I, like I said before, I'm passionate about growing startups. I'm passionate about law geeks. And therefore, I, I think I also view myself as the person that sometimes overdoes it with new ideas every day. So wow. every day I'm like, well, then we can solve this with a new way. And tomorrow I've got a new way. And then I keep coming up and, and, and then I have to self-assess and say, you know, pull, rein myself in and then decide of all those 10 ideas that I woke up with, which one is really the one that we should move forward with. Perfect. Thank you. Last question for me, I think, is about your managerial persona. 
First-time managers is probably one of the most exciting, but also the most turbulent and could be the most traumatizing periods in, mm. in a professional's life. You've been in management roles for how long now? 10, 12 years. 10, maybe. 12 years. Do you remember your first managerial position? People's manager? Absolutely. I remember my first ever hire. I had to uh, hire someone for a junior SDR role. And I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know what interview questions to ask. I didn't know what traits to look for. And then I didn't know what to do once I was a manager. I, I thought I was supposed to be their friend and not their manager. And I made a lot of errors. What got me through it was self-evaluation, being open and honest, um, talking to friends and family about their experiences. But also I walked right into my manager's office and said, hit me with it. What is going well? What is not going well? Um, you know, tell me everything that you're observing and, and give me the brutal truth. Tell me everything. And I still do that. I want to know the brutal truth. I've got thick skin. This is business. We're here to succeed. We're all here to, to, you know, to push and pull in the same direction. So let's, let's be honest. Do you see a generational difference in the ability to handle and even the desire to receive feedback? I see a huge difference. Um, I, I think that I see differences in, in generations and also in cultures. There are certain gen you know, younger generation and some specific cultures and from countries, they are very sensitive and maybe, you know, in their upbringing, they were only told, you know, the, the good things and which I'm not saying is a bad, a negative thing, but they don't like any feedback whatsoever. And in fact, I actually have had people in my team who also felt uncomfortable with positive feedback. Of course, They felt uncomfortable with negative feedback, but any talking about them sort of, you know, they, they moved around in their seats and it, it was, it was encroaching on their personal life. So as a manager, how do you cope? Because it's an unforgiving profession. It's an unforgiving ecosystem in that regard. I think being British Israeli is very helpful. I've got the politeness of my British upbringing, but I've got the elbows of an Israeli. And therefore, finding that balance in between is quite easy for me. Um, separating business and pleasure is easy for me. And I'm very happy to explain to anyone and everyone that, you know, we're all in it together. I'll ask questions such as, do you want to be successful? How do you think you can become successful? And then when they answer those questions, for, or do you want the company to be successful? When they answer those questions for themselves, then they come to a self-realization that, that it's okay to get feedback in order to grow. So your feedback conversations don't start with the feedback? Never. There's, there's, um, I, in LSE, I learned management. And part of that was actually organizational psychology. And we're going way back. And I'm not sure if it's still valid, but the sandwich uh, way of the, giving the, feedback. The bullshit, the infamous positive, bullshit negative, sandwich. Yeah, positive, negative, positive. Yeah. But, it, but it somewhat works. Okay? It works. It, it, as cliched as it is, it works. People you know, don't want to hear just the bad stuff, even though it occupies 90% of the conversation sometimes. Correct. I'm also a parent to four children, and it massively helps because when you tell a person, whether it's your child, whether it's an employee, when you tell them what to do, they, they've got a choice. They either listen or not, right? But when you explain to them why it's of benefit, then it will help them choose, that it, you know, choose the right answer. Are you struggling sometimes to carve out time to communicate so thoroughly? Because I find that sometimes I just become a lazy communicator because I'm distracted. Yes, I do. I personally struggle. I, I think there are better times, worse times. I find it hard in order to 
sometimes, you know, there are good days and bad days. It's hard sometimes to be dealing with big strategy and then everybody at a startup has their own work. And then you've got to take the burden of your team on your shoulders and help them with, you know, with their, with their small details. Absolutely, I struggle um, and I seek help and guidance for myself as well. Who do you go to to seek help and guidance in the overworked, overstretched startup landscape? So I, I normally go to present and past managers that I look up to. Um, they've helped me because I see that they've gone through, you know, a journey and, and I want to get to where they are. So they help. And then outside of work, I actually have, I'm very lucky. I have a friend who is an executive coach to some very large enterprises. And so I can just have some informal chats with him about getting some tips on work-life balance. Brilliant, David. This has been an absolute masterclass. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed this. This was an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Tal. The pleasure was all ours. We wish you and Logix and family the best of luck. Thank you. It's so good to see someone who is a responsible adult, who is thoughtful and courteous and also thorough and professional holding the, holding the reins. It's something that I personally have lacked or missed in my past endeavors. And it's so good to know that it exists. And we hope that this episode would go in and serve and help uh, train and qualify and open the minds of those who listen to it. Thank you so, so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 